0: up on today's show, who's in the race? We have six candidates for the leadership of the Canadian Progressive Conservative Party. In Afghanistan, as expected, things are very, very bleak as the Taliban regains position as government there. What does that look like? And Canadian researchers looking into some severe hepatitis cases. Six candidates uh, have jumped through the hoops and met all the standards. And those standards, uh, they're nothing to sneeze at either. We're talking about the Canadian Progressive Conservatives leadership race. Uh, Candidates had to come up with $300,000 in registration fees, and they had to submit all of it up front, along with a compliance deposit and signatures from 500 party members by last Friday in order to be verified. Six did so. Well, maybe. There's some others who say they did too, and they're not sure why they're not candidates. We'll get into that in a minute. Meanwhile, there are six official candidates in the running for the leadership. Um, You know, and as we go along, that number will probably change as some drop off, and then you've got endorsing opponents, and ultimately the last two, and probably more of them, will go to the vote sometime. It's in September, I believe, mid-September, and uh, before all that happens, though, we have campaigning, we have debates, the first one coming up uh, next week right here in Edmonton, so uh, it's just starting to ramp up so let's get uh well let's handicap the race if we can we have uh chris chapin joining us chris is a veteran of conservative leadership races and a managing principal of the upstream strategy group chris uh thank you so much for joining us today i appreciate your time thanks for having me on shay so let's just go through the field quickly here starting with the six candidates is that more than we expected when this leadership race began six official candidates I think
1: it's a little higher than uh, I think many would have thought uh, of the names that first entered the race or, or through their name in the ring. I think the fact that both Scott Achinson and Roman Baber uh, from Ontario were able to raise the $300,000 and the 500 signatures to get on the uh, on the ballot is, you know, I don't know if it's a surprise, but it's certainly not the... You know, the, the names of the front runners that we certainly expected to hit those thresholds easily.
0: Yeah, speaking of the front runners, it's still Pierre Polyev's race to lose at this point, right? He is seen clearly as the front runner right now.
1: I think that's safe to say. I think the party released uh, the first fundraising numbers yesterday, and Pierre Polyev was in the lead in that. He also led by the number of donors. And based off the crowd sizes yeah. we're seeing as he crisscrosses the country, it's hard to discount the fact that he's clearly the front frontrunner. Uh, but there's certainly, you know, the others uh, don't want to suggest that they're that far behind. But, uh, I mean, from those kind of metrics, he's certainly out there.
0: Lots of enthusiasm, like you say. Huge crowds, really impressive. Um, you know, not enough to win the leadership based on those crowds. He's going to need more than that. What do you see as being challenges that Paulia faces?
1: Well, the challenge is, you know, any leadership candidate faces is how many memberships can you sell yeah. that's you know what i think most people forget this race boils down to it's not the size of your crowds or how much money you can raise there's been many candidates and many leadership races that have had big crowds before or out outfundraised their opponents by hundreds of thousands that ultimately come up short it's about making sure you have enough members and enough ridings across the country to put you over the finish line and, and get to you that you know 50 percent plus one and so i think that's always the challenge any candidate faces for Pierre Poilievre. That's uh, you know to ensure that he he has a coalition of voters in, in every corner of the country that get him there. Uh, and the way that the federal party uses you know the point system that that can be a challenge for some front runners. Uh, we've seen it plague you know a front runner like Peter McCabe yeah. for example, where in the last leadership race he he led in fundraising and. Uh, certainly did well in membership sales, but the, the coalition, Aaron O'Toole, was able to put together, ultimately uh, surpassed them on the final ballot. Uh,
0: of course, I think the guy most people see as number two and the biggest threat to Pierre Polyev would be Jean Charest. He's certainly the biggest name uh, aside from Polyev at this point. Um, has he managed to build any momentum? He's been in the race for a while now. Has he managed to make up any ground? I'm not sure if it's that he's made up any ground.
1: I mean, the, the fundraising numbers that were announced yesterday will certainly be encouraging yeah. for, for Jean Charest. Uh, I think they've executed a, a very smart uh, you know, PR strategy to get him into every newspaper and on every TV outlet to remind conservatives across the country who he is. He's been out of the public eye for the better part of a decade, and there's a lot of younger voters that wouldn't be nearly as familiar with Jean Charest as they would be uh with Pierre Polyev just because somebody like Jean Cheré had to sign up for a Twitter account to run in this race. Uh whereas, you know, Pierre Polyev had a huge uh step ahead in, in the, yeah. the social media growth Very we already strong. had. So you know, I think Jean Charest is certainly a contender. I think the, the other two right behind him cannot be discounted in Leslie Lewis. And, and certainly, uh, I could never count out Patrick Brown from, from winning anything. Uh, you know, he's just such a strong organizer that I think Jean Chiré is certainly perceived to be the one, uh, right behind Pierre Polyev or, or nipping at his toes. I, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think the, the other two both have formidable voter coalitions across the country that will provide a, a real challenge to that, but, you know, when it, when it comes down to the votes cap, might, uh, might surprise people and potentially leapfrog sure, Yeah,
0: well, Lewis is very interesting because she impressed a lot. I mean, this is her second go-around at the leadership, and she really she didn't win, obviously, but she really impressed a lot of people the first time. So she's got a pretty solid foundation to build on, I think.
1: Absolutely. I mean, she's the only one in this race that ran in the last leadership yeah. race, and she's got a membership, uh, a list that two years ago, I won't say nearly won it for her, but she came darn close to to getting onto that final ballot. And some believe she could have maybe edged out either Erin O'Toole or Peter McKay on the final ballot had she gotten to it. So she's got a lot of data from the the last leadership race that was less than than two years ago at this point. So she's certainly got an advantage in that regard. Whether she can, you know, whether lightning can strike twice for her, that's the big question. She was certainly appealing to many conservative voters as something new in the last leadership race. Erin uh, O'Toole had obviously run in the previous one. Peter McKay had co-formed the party with Stephen Harper 20 years ago. So she offered the party something new. I, I think the, the challenge, and you know, aside from just being a strong social conservative in the yeah. race, the challenge she's going to face is... Is Pierre Polyev eating in some of that, you know, offering something new to conservative voters? Uh, because he is he is something new, and he's an opportunity to kind of refresh the party, just like she was in the last race.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about the three or four who say, you know what, we met the thresholds and we're not allowed to be candidates. I'm talking about uh, Joseph Forgo from Saskatchewan, Joel Etienne, and Grant Abraham, all who said they came up the $300,000, they had the signatures, they were ready to go, and the party... Would not allow them to be um, official candidates, and some are filing protests. Um, is the party sort of putting up some guardrails around who's in and who's out of this race, or do you really think uh, there's more to it here? I, I mean, the party's certainly entitled
1: to put up guardrails around the race. I, I think it's it's still very new, and I think there's probably more to learn. Uh, a lot of these candidates were absolute nobodies uh, that have kind of come out of nowhere to try to seek the leadership race. So I, I, there's, there's also a lot for them to gain by continuing to get their names out there in news stories saying that they did meet criteria, even if they may not have. Uh, ultimately, it's the party that gets to decide that. And if, if there was wrongdoing, that'll, that'll find its way out uh, to the public eye, and, and scrutiny may come as a result of that. But at this point, I, I, I trust the party. They've, you know, the Conservative Party of Canada has now held several leadership races in the last couple of years. Uh, much, you know, unfortunately in their case, but I think they know what they're doing. And if if they did, in fact, disqualify these candidates, I I think there's likely valid reasons for it.
0: Uh, And of course, now all, all eyes on May 11th next week here in Edmonton, as all six of them square off in an English debate. And that's when this campaign really kicks off in earnest, I guess, right?
1: Absolutely. It's going to be the first real time that these candidates are, are in a room together and, and have the opportunity to challenge each other. There was a all candidates forum in Ontario this week or, or or just over the weekend. And, you know, that was an opportunity for the six of them to be in a room together. But they just gave pre prepared yeah. six minute speeches. This would be the real first chance for the, the couple of front runners, especially to go after each other uh talk about the ideas and and challenge each other on some of the you know controversial positions there's certainly some divisions lining up uh over things like bill 21 and religious freedom uh scott agency brought up supply management which is always a a lightning rod in conservative party leadership races and and then just the the overall discussions on how we've handled the the COVID pandemic and and you know mask mandates uh vaccine mandates. i think there's going to be certainly a lot more things that come up uh in this debate that are are divisive than, than the last one. Uh,
0: On that note, I meant to ask you, and I forgot, Roman Baber, uh, turfed from Doug Ford's cabinet. Uh, He was opposed to COVID-19 lockdowns. He sort of staked out that position, like you say, some of the more divisive issues. How big of a factor do you think he might be? And could he hurt Polyev more so than anybody else? I'm not sure as much that he could hurt Polyev. I think Roman has certainly
1: put himself in a position that he's, got the opportunity to potentially be a kingmaker in this race. He's certainly going to be able to sell memberships. I think the fact that he's on the ballot uh with raising the three hundred thousand dollars, getting the nomination signatures that he did, and sounds like he did so relatively easily. He built up a, a solid organizational network over not just uh the pandemic, but before that. He was a smart organizer politically. He the mandate Uh, and the lockdowns have certainly given him a a lightning rod to appeal to certain members uh, across the country. Uh, He's also a unique candidate in that when he talks about ending mandates and ending lockdowns, there's a guy that's fully vaccinated and said, you know, there's science I trust and there's science I don't trust. So he he certainly could be a factor in this race. It'll all depend on how much party members want to look back at
0: the last two years versus look forward to the future. Going to be very, very interesting. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Jay. That is Chris Chapin, who is a veteran of conservative leadership races and a managing principal of the Upstream Strategy Group, giving us a breakdown. Um, Yeah, it's definitely going to be uh, interesting to see how it goes. And, of course, as we said, May 11th is when uh, all six of them will come together in Edmonton for an English leadership debate Um, And that'll give us our first chance to sort of see how they interact and how they go after each other and how they defend their positions. And, you know, debates are always fun. So that's coming up May 11th. There was a lot of things on the go when um, the West left Afghanistan. And we know the Taliban moving back in was one of the major, major concerns. What would that mean? Uh, We were trying to get Uh, people who had been friendly to the Western forces out uh, because the Taliban had vowed revenge against them. Uh, There was also concerns for what would happen with the people left behind in Afghanistan with, with the Taliban back, you know, human rights, would they be abandoned once again? Women denied the right to, well, really any autonomy at all. Um, Dark days were predicted. So now months later, we can take a look and say, okay, what's happened so far. We're going to chat now with, uh, Jamaluddin Aram, who's a documentary filmmaker, a producer, and a writer from Kabul, who currently lives in Toronto. Uh, Jamaluddin, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, like, uh, and of course you remember as well, uh, we, we, we really feared the Taliban returning to Afghanistan. You know, going by um, the account that you recently put forward in the Globe and Mail, it sounds like it's maybe even worse than we had feared. What is the situation for the people in Afghanistan now, um, months after the West left and the Taliban returned?
2: Well, it's, it's unfortunately, it's terrible. Um, there are a couple of things that are very urgent. And for example, the economy, people say it's on, in the brink of collapse, but I think it has already collapsed. There is The, the formal economy um, is all over the place. Um, there is drought, and which, you know, with the long war, um, so you can imagine the, the, the poverty. And some of the things that, that, that you hear, it almost has an element of fantastic to them. For example, people selling their kidneys um, to put, uh, to put um, food on the table. Uh, and some parents in some parts of the country, unfortunately, um, has to sell one of their children so that they can, uh, you know, feed the, the rest of them. And with these things, you can imagine the crime rates going up and everybody trying to, you know, earn some money in, in whatever way that they can. Um, and also something that the Taliban um, promised all along was that they would bring security. Of course, when the the, the problems that they caused, uh, that stopped. But there are other groups who are causing troubles. And you could see in the past uh, couple of weeks the explosions that have been Uh, you know, targeting uh, uh, religious minorities in Afghanistan. So, and overall, I think there is a general collective sense of hopelessness,
0: unfortunately. In terms of, you know, the politics and how the government is actually operating as we expect the government might operate, what's happening? I mean, the economy's, like you say, an absolute freefall, uh, violence, corruption, all these sorts of things. What are we seeing in terms of, you know, if we can call it that, government of the Taliban?
2: Uh, well, there is, they say it's an interim government and they're trying to, um, you know, in the near future um, have a formal government introduced. But, but so far, um, the, the things that you see, it's, it's just out of uh, a nightmare. You know, people, 14 members of the 33 cabinets of the Taliban interim government, they are on the UN Security Council blacklist. Um, so it's, it's a government or it's a country run by, uh,
0: by, um, and, you know, some of the, the actors that we saw before, like we're talking about notorious wanted criminals, people with multimillion dollar bounties on their heads from the United States for atrocities committed are back openly operating in Afghanistan once again, right? That's true. Um, so when we take a look at the Taliban and the promises that they made and all the things that they said, the progress, all that stuff, all just talk.
2: Uh, it is, and unfortunately, um, some of it. I don't say that Afghans um, didn't have any part to play in this in this chaos. We did, you know, the government did. There was widespread corruption inside the government, um, but the things that that you see now, part of it is because the international community paved the way for them. Uh, for example, if you remember yeah. back in 2020, um, it was the Americans that went and started the, the peace talks with the Taliban, or the negotiations, as they call with the Taliban, without you know, involving the Afghans until the later stages, which the Taliban by then saw that they were legitimized by the U.S., and they didn't have to talk to the Afghan government, uh, right? And they didn't. Uh, so they took uh, control and they took power by by force.
0: Um, of course, there was a lot of concern about what would happen with women. Um, has it gone right back to what it was before? There was promises again that they wouldn't deny women the right to work or to get education or anything like. What's happened with women in Afghanistan?
2: Oh, you you could see, um, you know, right away those talks, the peace talks in Doha. There were no female representatives on the on the Taliban side of the negotiation team. And then once the Taliban came to power, one of the first things that they did, they changed the name of the Ministry of Women's Affairs in Kabul. They changed it to the Ministry of the Propagation of uh, Virtue and Prevention of Vice. So that's basically taking the whole um, institution that was serving women out and replacing it by, you know, a very severe... Uh, 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 an institution that is enforcing Sharia law on on people. And then they had also made promises that they would allow uh, women to work and girls to go to school, and they did not deliver on those promises, and the the girls' schools are are, are closed.
0: General Ledeen, were we naive to think the Taliban was capable of actually doing any of the things that they promised and we said they would do? When you take a look at the way they operate, was that just? I mean, did they have the ability? Did they have the capacity to even do some of the things that we were told they might be able to do? Did they even entertain the idea? I think that I think that they do have the ability, but the the
2: better question to ask is, do they have the will um, to to do anything to to bring any. Um, changes, uh, which I don't, which I don't see in the past 20 years, the way they have acted, the way they have ruled in the places that they had control over, and now that they have control over the whole country, you you don't see any change. Probably they changed in the sense that they now use Twitter and and, and technology and yeah. use um, the media in their advantage. But apart from that they haven't changed in terms of what they believe
0: in. Jamal Adin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us and giving us some insight as to what's going on. Thank you for having me. You bet. That is Jamal Adin Aram, who is a documentary filmmaker, producer, and writer from Kabul, currently living in Toronto. And, you know, if you take a look at it, um, I don't know what we really expected. There were promises made, um, but it looks like um, very few of those, if any, uh, have come to late, but I think that was to be expected. You've probably seen this story bouncing around for a while now, and now it's in Canada and Canadian health officials are looking into it and trying to find out exactly what the situation is. Um, Cases of severe acute hepatitis, which basically just means inflammation of the liver, um, of unknown origin. It's showing up in some children in Canada. It's been showing up in children in other countries around the world. And at this point, um, you know, experts are trying to figure out exactly what's going on, what might be uh, happening here, where this is coming from. Um, To get some insight on that, we're going to chat with Dr. Simon Lamb, who's a pediatrician and clinical associate professor of the Cummings School of Medicine with an expertise in hepatology or liver disease. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today.
3: Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on.
0: This is, a, this is really, really interesting. What do we know about this situation? What are we seeing, first of all? What are you guys noticing in these cases? What do they look like?
3: Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so just to give a little bit of uh, sort of context and background, um, so as you mentioned, you know, the, there's been some cases of severe hepatitis or severe liver inflammation that has been reported in children. Um, that was typically first sort of discovered or first sort of reported in Scotland. And the reason that it sort of came about was because, you know, as a hepatologist or as a liver doctor, we do see kids with severe liver inflammation from time to time. Yeah. But um, in Scotland, um, sort of at the beginning of this year, they found that they had like five cases of the severe hepatitis over a three-week period. And usually they only see about three to four cases a year. So seeing that five, um, you know, cases in in that three-week period was a bit of a spike. So then they decided to look back at their preceding months, and they ended up finding another eight cases of, of severe hepatitis. So as a result of that, um, they ended up, you know, uh, notifying their public health agency and sort of sending out this report. Um, And what they found was that, you know, they had all these patients uh, presenting or coming to hospital because uh, families had noticed that their child was jaundiced. And what I mean by that is, you know, the whites of their eyes were a bit yellow. Um, They were more tired, more fatigued, um, and a lot of them also had uh, pre illnesses like vomiting, diarrhea, that type of thing. And so when they were investigated by either their family doctor or the emergency department, um, they were found to have um, severe hepatitis or, or inflammation of the liver.
0: Interesting. Okay, so when we're talking about kids, how old are these kids typically?
3: Um, so the first report, uh, they, out of Scotland, um, they were typically like less than six years of age. Um, so they had about 13 cases, um, and they were pretty much all less than six years of age. There was one that was 10. Mm-hmm. Um, but then since that report sort of come out, um, as a hepatology community, we've really kind of thought, hmm, like what, how, many, you know, how, have we seen any of these recently? And um, when we compiled the data, and, you know, the UK has been really good at this, They've reported probably about 170 cases um, looking back um, since January, and these patients have been anywhere from, like, 1-year-old all the way to 16 years old
0: Now, it sounds awful, of course, but how serious is it? Are these kids recovering? Is this life-threatening? What do we know about that?
3: You know that's a good question. So fortunately you know most patients do do well and they do recover. Um, Some of them require some hospital admission and um, just following their blood work. Uh, But you know hepatitis can sometimes be very serious in some of these patients. And you know there's reports that the liver inflammation is so bad that the liver doesn't function properly. Um, data from both the U.K. and the U.S. have reported that some of these kids have required, uh, have needed liver transplants um, because their livers were, were not working related to the, to the inflammation. Um, fortunately, the kids that did require liver transplants all recovered um, following the transplant. Um, and as far as I'm aware, there has been one reported death in Wisconsin, um, which may be related to this type of hepatitis.
0: How unusual is this kind of liver illness I- I- in children? I mean, I imagine that's a pretty tough question to answer, but is this, uh, how how surprising is this to you?
3: Um, you know, that's, 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 a, you know yeah. so that's a little bit of a tough one to answer. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say that is because we do see hepatitis, like severe hepatitis from time to time. So it's not totally outside of what we would see. I think what's a little bit unusual, um, at least the way that it's been reported in the UK and and particularly in Scotland, is that they just have a whole bunch of these in a relatively short period of time. Um, And the the other thing that's a little bit um, tricky to parse out is that You know, there's there's many, many, many things that can cause hepatitis. So usually we think about, like, viruses. Sometimes we think about drugs. Sometimes we think about autoimmune conditions, um, like autoimmune hepatitis, that type of thing. Um, And there's also genetic causes that can cause uh, hepatitis or severe liver inflammation. Um, So it's a little bit unusual in that it seems like there's been, now that everyone's sort of looking into it, there's been a bit more cases. But what's not super unusual is that, You know, oftentimes when we have a patient with hepatitis, probably, you know, like 30 to to 40 percent of the time, we don't often find a a clear cause of the hepatitis. But it is a little bit unusual that um, at least the the global community has has reported a bit of uptake taking it.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about cause. And uh, so, I mean, it's not ever easy, but do we have any idea why this sudden spike in cases may have been presenting, you know, in many places around the world?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think the experts uh, are looking into it. Um, you know, I, I think right now the, the leading hypothesis or, or what the theory is, is that it's probably a viral cause. Um, the, the thought is that, um, at least in the UK, they found that about 75% of the patients uh, with this sort of uh, hepatitis had a virus called adenovirus that, they were detect- uh, that was detected. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that was detected... Um, kind of like on a nose swab, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, uh, but also um, on the blood and sometimes in the stool. Um, They also found some patients didn't have adenovirus, some patients had COVID, um, and then there were other sort of more common respiratory viruses that were also detected in other patients. Um, So it's not totally clear, but the the thought that that it's probably um, a, a viral cause uh, but of course, you know, they, they're looking into everything, they're, they're wondering if, okay, well, could it be like a like a toxic um, thing that initially that they thought maybe it, it was in, because it was in Scotland that it was reported. So really, everything's still a little bit on the table, um, but adenovirus is sort of the, the top candidate right now. Um, okay. And as you know, adenovirus is, is a common... Very sort of, common, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Very, very common. Um, Usually it just causes sort of upper respiratory tract symptoms, so like a bit of a runny nose, um, a cough, you can sometimes get conjunctivitis or sort of like eye redness, but sometimes it can cause some GI symptoms like vomiting and and diarrhea and that type of thing. Um, You know, usually in a healthy child or a, a healthy adult, the adenovirus can cause a little bit of liver irritation, so you know, if I happen to do you know, blood work in a patient that I knew had adenovirus, I I would expect, you know, some of the liver enzymes to be a little bit um, high, suggesting a bit of hepatitis or liver irritation. But it's pretty unusual to see this degree of um, liver inflammation related to to adenovirus in a healthy patient.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for your time today coming on and uh, giving us a little insight. I really appreciate it.
3: Okay, perfect. Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, thanks very much. That's Dr. Simon Lamb, who's a pediatrician and a clinical associate professor at the Cummings School of Medicine. Thanks for listening today. If to you hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.